Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Business Writers Radio. Brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. Welcome to another exciting and informative edition of Business Writers Radio. Stone Peyton Lee Cantor here with you this afternoon. Lee, I told you about this guy late last week. You knew he was coming on. Now it's finally happening. Please join me in welcoming welcoming to the broadcast, Mr. Jeff Herman. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. So, Jeff, how are you helping authors or aspiring authors in your work? Okay. Well, uh, in a nutshell, if it if such a thing can be put in a nutshell, traditional publishers, which are ones you would have heard of or not heard of, such as Simon and Schuster, Random House, they do not give access to people who want to get published. So, I always tell the story about the person who took a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel turned it into a raw-looking manuscript and submitted it and immediately began to get rejection letters uh, from people uh, suggesting that it wasn't well-written. Uh, of course, this was a book that has sold over a million copies and uh, had won a Pulitzer Prize and had been on bestseller lists. And this is a true story. And the reason why that happened is because the writer was not recognized and the book was not recognized. He changed the title. And he wasn't able to get access. Publishers do not have an infrastructure to actually screen what the public is writing and submitting. They rely upon the literary agents, for the most part, to actually do the screening in the publisher's behalf, even though they don't work for the publishers. They work with the publishers. They represent the writers. But it's their job to nominate what is worthy for access what is worthy for consideration. So not all of the time, but most of the time, if you actually want a bona fide editor at a traditional publishing house to even read your work, it generally has to go through a literary agency. And, and that's the primary function. We're the bridge. Now, can you, can you give us kind of a, uh, maybe a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what it's like to be a publisher? I know that you're a literary agent but maybe educate the uh, author on what is happening at this publishing house. What, what is their day to day? Cause that, I mean, that sounds good and it, it, you know, but I'm an author and I'm like, but my book's special. And once they see it or get their hands on it, then I don't really need a literary agent. I'm sure a lot of authors think that, but can you give us kind yeah, of a behind the scenes glimpse of yeah. what, what does that look like at a publisher? Sure. You know, I was just talking to someone about that today who was wondering why he needs a, an agent. And there's a reason why the best-selling writers you would have heard of or not heard of from the past have been rejected dozens and dozens of times before they actually landed a deal. And again, it really comes down to access, because if you don't get a person to read the book, it doesn't matter how good it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Someone's got to actually put their eyeballs to it. So what is it that the publishers are doing? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that the publishers are actually dependent upon people to write and generate the content. Very little, if any, in most cases, none of the content 
that the publishers are publishing is generated in-house. It's not like a magazine where maybe they have in-house writers who are generating a lot of the content. Uh, in book publishing, all of the content generation is outsourced, and it's the editor's job to really be an acquisitions manager, to look for each editor maybe has a mandate of finding 20 new books to publish that year uh, for the publisher. And that's their job. So how are they going to find those 20? Well, the typical publishing house, such as a Simon & Schuster, is easily getting a few hundred thousand unsolicited submissions, unsolicited, unagented submissions each year. Uh, Now most of them are digital. Uh, Go back a few years, about a decade, and virtually all of them were physical, which was a real uh, logistical mess. That mailroom must have been an interesting place. Yeah, yeah. So now it's digital, which which means you don't need the uh, physical storage facility uh, to store it all. But, you know, it then also creates a a data jam uh, because everything gets lined up behind each other. I don't know if you've ever opened up your spam after a few months and saw uh, how many thousands of uh, emails got jammed in there, some of which may, may have been legitimate. So what the acquisition editor has to do is find 20, let's just say I'm speaking hypothetically, is find 20 good books that are going to make a profit for the publisher. Where are they going to find it? Well, if they only have a certain amount of time each day, they really can't waste their time looking through what they call the slush pile, which is all the unagented, unsolicited submissions, because 99% of that, or more than 99% of it, they would probably have to reject anyway, even if they gave it quality attention. They would have to reject it because it just isn't the right book. It isn't the right uh, topic or category, or it's just not well-written. So they could easily spend 20 hours a day going through all of this without necessarily finding one of the 20. Right. These are needles in the haystack that they don't have the resources to go through to find that, you know, there might be the, the needle, the golden needle in there, but they just don't have the resources And that's not a kind of safe bet for them. There's more efficient ways for them to get closer to the right 20 books than to hope that one of the thousands of unsolicited books are the right one. You summed it up perfectly. Yes, there are golden nuggets Mm -hmm. in there. But go pan for gold where the 49ers did it 150 years ago or whatever. You know, you're you're there's still a few gold nuggets in there, but you're going to have to get really darn lucky to find one. So where are they getting it? Okay, well, the primary way is they have relationships with the literary agents, and the literary agents are doing the hardcore screening, and the literary agents know which editors and which publishers specialize in what kind of works. So when it comes, when the submission comes from an agent who has a credible relationship with the editor, it will at least get access. doesn't mean it'll get acquired. It may still get rejected. In fact, most agented works are rejected ultimately, but close to 100% of agented works get access to an editor, whereas much fewer than 1% of the works that are going through the slush submission process are getting access. 
less than 1% probably. The other crucial way that publishers do indeed find books that they wish to acquire is through direct solicitation. And this really depends upon the editor and whether or not he likes, she likes to take the initiative. They may read about an important event and they'll reach out to experts to write about that event. Mm -hmm. They may read about a true crime situation and they will directly contact the uh, parties to that true crime situation and offer to hook them up with uh, ghostwriters or collaborators who could tell their story. So it's not uh, impossible to receive a direct solicitation from an editor, and it happens all the time. An editor might attend a speaking event or read a uh, column by a particular author and say, oh, that individual should write a book, and they will make direct contact. But those are one of the 20, right? That's part yeah, of their portfolio be, for the year. It might be a certain percentage or ones they find on their, on their own. The vast majority are the ones that are found through a literary agent. And then next to none are found through this, just some person randomly emails somebody they found their name, right? Yeah. Uh, there are some uh, editors who are just being trained, like 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds who are being trained in the process in order to train them they may be told to go look through the slush and start screening it so that they can get in the habit of it and start to learn about what is something that can be considered for acquisition and, and why something else cannot be. So it does happen every now and then that something is discovered without being directly solicited or without being represented by an agent. It does happen, but it's kind of like trying to win a lot of money in a state lottery system. Right. You mentioned that the goal, obviously, of the publisher is to make a profit on their 20 uh, books they're choosing this year. Now, are they all, are they shooting that everyone's going to be a home run? Or are they okay with some of them being singles, some of them being doubles? Or does everything have to be, you know, like number one best selling, you know, mega you know, hit? That's a good question. And each, you know, the big publishers today, there's basically big five multinational conglomerates. And within each of them, you have many divisions, and many programs, each of which has their own little brand name. And you wouldn't necessarily know that they're all sister and brother companies of, of the same big uh, monolith. And each uh, program has its own model. Some of the programs are based upon only publishing what they think will be home runs or grand slams. And they're budgeted uh, to pay a lot of upfront money for those books. And th these are the programs that might publish a former president, a former secretary of state, a, a huge celebrity. Uh, they, they put a lot of money into getting the book. And the expectation is that all of that money will come back and more. Uh, and then there are programs which exist for the purpose of really feeding what's known as the backlist, the catalog. Mm -hmm. uh, the catalog of the evergreen books, books that could have been published 50 years ago, but still sell. And they don't need any upfront investment. They don't need any upfront marketing. There's just a constant, perpetual word-of-mouth market. And the idea of the front list is really to try to generate and plant seeds for the backlist. 
So those books don't require as much upfront expectation. Uh, the advances will be much more modest, meaning the money they give you upfront, because the expectations upfront are much more modest. But that also creates an opportunity for the rest of us. You know, those of us who weren't president of the United States or secretary of state or, you know, made five uh, smash films over the past year. Now, when you're talking about the money part of this, what is a realistic number for somebody that's just, a, you know, regular business person, has a nonfiction book, maybe first time author? Is it something it's not like, you know, you read about the things in the news or the, you know, the celebrities or the former presidents that are making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Yeah. Right. So yeah. what is it for the CEO of a company that, you know, he's not a household name or she's not a household name, but, you know, she's well respected in her industry and the, and she wrote a book about something relevant to today's times. Right. So what the, the publisher, see the editor, the editor's uh, longevity with the publisher is his or her employer is dependent upon their ability to make some money and not lose money. <laughs> if you're, because basically you're an acquisition point. The editor, you know, needs to make an effort not just to look for quality content, but look for an author who basically can push a few buttons and sell a few thousand copies in you know just based on their own networks their own just because they do public speaking because they've been in the media even if it's just a business media you know not outside as long as they have standing within certain core communities they don't need to be massive celebrities but they need to have a good strong reputation within a one or more communities. You're using the example of a CEO would be somebody who in, you know, let's say finance, if it's a CEO in a finance company, within the finance community, this is a person who's very well respected and that could be documented. And it could be assumed that thousands of people in that community, once this person's book comes out, are going to buy it. They're going to pay money for it because they want to know what this individual has to say. So that's what a publisher is also going to look for. Not just content, but the person's standing in their communities. And then part of that would be like if, if uh, like you said, in finance, that they know that there's 10 big conferences every year and this person could speak at six of them. And they'll be attended by so many thousands of people each. Like that, there. That's part of the algorithm to see if this is exactly. something that could be a book that can have some legs and sell. And then maybe even be like you said that evergreen book that might be able to sell year after year. Next edition of it. The expectation is that the author, the business author in this case, is going to take the responsibility to be his or her own marketing department for the book. They're not expected to print the book. They're not expect, expected to edit the book, but they are expected to create word of mouth traffic about the book. So if they can make themselves available to do a lot of high visibility speaking to their communities, and they will maybe in a discreet way reference their book or the promotion about them at the event references their book, this is all very crucial. 
And this is what a publisher depends upon. And then if the book can stay relevant for the next 10 to 20 years, that's even better because that means it will continue to make revenue without consuming capitalization. And then for the um, author that is has written this book, is a number like at that level is like you said several thousand. Is it five thousand? Is it ten thousand? What's like well, kind of the a expectation? Publisher today, in my experience, it used to be lower, but now they're thinking that they really need to sell approximately ten thousand units uh, the first twelve months out as as a baseline as a minimum baseline. There's no guarantee they'll get there. And they may surpass that many times. You know, anything, these are just rough estimations. No one really knows until it happens. But uh, that's sort of a rule of thumb. They have to figure that they can uh, sell about 10,000 units in that first 12 to 15 months upon publication. And if they could do that, they're, they're going to be pretty happy. And both sides will be happy. The uh, the author will be happy that they you know have a happy publisher. The publisher is making some money and might invest again in their second book, or or, or at least now that they don't have to, you know, they have a better chance that their second or third books, you know, has a home. They're not starting from scratch anymore. Right. Well, yes and no, because it really depends on everybody's expectations at the outset. Hopefully, you have alignment and communication at the outset regarding expectations. Now, if a publisher gives an advance to an author of, let's say, just $10,000 for the book, that's against future royalties. Mm -hmm. Their expectations for that first year or two are, by definition, very modest. They're not going to expect to sell more than 10,000 copies in that first year or so. And the author needs to know that that's the publisher's expectation and hopefully knows that that's the publisher's expectation. And if the author wants to surpass that, they're going to have to use their own resources to make that happen, meaning that they're going to have to really drill down and do a lot more self-promotion to their communities to make it sell more than the publisher's modest expectation. Now, as an agent, how do how are you working with your clients? Because now I'm an aspiring author. I'm not going to the publisher. I'm trying to find an agent, so I'm going to you. Are you doing that same math? Like, look, I'm going to need you to sell 10,000 units. You'll probably get an advance of $10,000. And you're obviously, as the agent, getting a percentage of whatever monies are generated. So you got to really believe in your client here. Right. And you got to counsel uh, a them. Legitimate, yeah. Uh, a legitimate agent only earns money on the basis of a commission. There's no fees. There's no loser fees. <laughs> right. The only way it works is for the agent is to be able to sell the work and negotiate money. And the agency will generally commission 15% uh, against whatever the advance and the future royalties are. Uh, also, the agent has to defend his or her credibility and relationship. So an agent who consistently is submitting pitching works that are simply not appropriate, either qualitatively or on the basis of category to certain publishers, uh, is an agent who will lose his or her access and, and therefore is of no value to him or herself. 
So an agent needs to be selective uh, for financial reasons and for credibility reasons, for relationship reasons, uh, with his or her customer, which is the publisher. Right. The agent needs to make decisions on the basis of, gee, can I sell this to a publisher? Is this something that a publisher might actually acquire? And again, there's no hard science to that. It's, it's a judgment. It's, it's a guess. There's what you call the slam dunk. I mean, and some agents will only do slam dunks, and, and it works for them. Meaning that if they have to know by with a certainty of at least eighty percent that someone that a publisher is going to buy that work, it's a slam dunk. And then sometimes there may be more of fifty-fifty. Meaning there's a fifty percent chance that a publisher will acquire the work, and a fifty percent chance that they won't because the author is just kind of like right at the cusp mm-hmm. of being someone who might be eligible to meet that minimum baseline standard of 10,000 unit sales. And these are all judgment calls. And agents are not in alignment on their... That's why you should never just go and take the advice of one agent. There are works that I pass on that go on to do very well. And there are works that other agents pass on that I take on that go on to do very well because we're all just human. Now, as, as part of your job, how do how does an author get your attention? How do you kind of find the the author that you you want to work with? Okay, the way I work and the way I believe most of my colleagues work is well, of course there's always referral. You know, there's a lot of that. And uh, that that adds value to the writer if they can get a direct referral as in any business. But otherwise the through a little bit of research the writer can get the names of the agencies, what they specialize in, because agents, some agents only do romance novels. And if you're writing a, a sales book, it's, it's of no purpose for you to pitch right. your sales book to an agency that only does romance novels. So you, you need to do a little research and figure out who the agencies are that work in your category. And then if you go to their website, uh, you can generally find their submission guidelines because agents are looking for new clients. And generally, they will have a physical address and also a, a submission mailbox. I think more and more of my colleagues have now really gotten much more comfortable with the digital submissions because the touch costs have been eliminated. You get something in the mail, a big bulky thing. You have to put it somewhere. You have to open it and you have to like hold it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then maybe send it back in the self-addressed envelope <laughs> most of the time. But if it's digital, you know, you can start scanning it, taking a look at it and, and make a, a fast decision. And with one click, either say, yeah, let's see more. Let's talk. Or sorry, it's not for me. You know, just with one. So the, uh, that's one of the, great advantages of the digital world. I mean, there are disadvantages. We all know that. But that's one of the advantages is that it does create a lot of efficiencies. Now, in the nonfiction world, which I believe that's where you work, uh, is it required to have the completed manuscript? Like how, how much of the book has to be baked in order you know, to get your attention? Yeah, the, the beautiful thing about nonfiction writing 
is that you're not expected to have the manuscript and for most categories of nonfiction, not all. Uh, and it's actually preferred that you not have the whole manuscript. What is wanted is what's known as the book proposal. And the essence of the book proposal is the chapter outline, which is where, just like with a high school paper, you would basically explain how you're going to editorially organize your book and give a little bit of uh, flavor in the description of each chapter, maybe just a few hundred words, defining and explaining and portraying each of the chapters, and then one or two sample chapters instead of a whole manuscript. The other aspects of the proposal are, of course, the about the author section and the author marketing section, how the author will be able to use his or her research uh, resources and standing to help promote and sell the book upon publication. Now, as part of your marketing as an agent, you wrote Jeff Herman's Guide to Book Publishers, Editors, and Literary Agents. What was that process like for you being on the other side of the desk? You know, did you have to go through the same part? Did you, did you have to get an agent? Like, how, how did it work for you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, we've now done 27 editions of that book. Uh, I started writing it in my 20s uh, when I first started in the business because I, I know and I was an agent, so I didn't need an agent. I had the relationships. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been on, but, you know, that's not the only book uh, I've, I've authored. It's the most successful by far. I mean, it sold a few hundred thousand copies and, and still goes. Yeah, no, I, I understand firsthand from that experience the frustrations and the limitations of being an author. You know, you really give away a lot of power <laughs> when you're an, an author and don't necessarily get the kinds of attention or resources or results that, that, you know, one would like. Now, when you're working with clients, how do you broach the subject of self-publishing versus traditional publishing? I think self-publishing is wonderful, but you have to start from the context that traditional publishers are rejecting more than 99% of everything that they're seeing. And the typical self-publisher has a zero rejection rate, unless you're a masochistic <laughs> <That's right>. self-publisher <laughs> and you want to stand in front of the mirror and hold up your manuscript. Not good say, enough, Lee. You. you should have tried harder. Sorry. I, I have to pass. <laughs> you know, and, and some of us may do that as sort of a painful exercise in, in humility. But uh, so the reason I, I use that illustration is because it's the credibility of having a traditional publisher. A lot of people will know that you are, you know, one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand, mm -hmm. you know, that that's been selected. Whereas that will not be immediately uh, clear, or it's just not the case if you're a self-publisher, because you can publish anything. Uh, so that that, and then of course there's the distribution factor. Uh, the bookstores, which are still very important. The, what they call brick-and-mortar bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and, and the thousands of mom-and-pop uh, independent bookstores, they are not looking to... It's not possible for them to have a relationship with the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who are self-publishing. 
they they concentrate their relationships with the with the same publishers they've been working with for decades basically and so getting access as a self publisher for that level of distribution is it, it's not impossible but it's extremely difficult mm-hmm. so if you're self publishing you basically have to rely upon being able to drive traffic to Amazon which will which will carry anybody they carry 10 million or 20 million books whatever anyone could put a book on Amazon but then you have to generate sales make people go buy it uh or you don't or you don't even care about that you just want to be able to take your books to your programs you're doing 100 programs a year some people i know do that <laughs> And uh, they sell a hundred books each time they do a, a program, and they print the book for a dollar, and they sell the book for ten or fifteen dollars, and uh, they're very, very happy doing that. And they don't need these other uh, accoutrements that come with traditional publishing. Right. It sounds like that it's probably better to have your first book traditionally published, but your fifth or sixth one, you might be able to get away with self-publishing. Yeah, yeah, but you know, then of course all that infrastructure falls on you. Right. I mean, you you have to pay to get it. Produ- I mean, there's still a, a production process. Right. Uh, getting a book converted into a, a state in which it can be printed uh, it needs to be edited. Uh, it needs to have a cover design. It needs to, and then you know they need to go somewhere. They need to be put somewhere. <laughs> And they need to be carried around. And, you know, so there's there's all of that, which uh, when you have a traditional publisher, uh, you, you can hand all of that off. Now, um, when you're working with your clients, how has that how has, um, you know, these ebooks and audio books and um, the self-publishing kind of mentality that's around a little bit today? How has that changed your business? Well, it's interesting. It's it's hard to say exactly how or why, but I think the business has been disrupted for one for the most important reason why the business has been disrupted for people like me, for everybody. Corporate consolidation resources. Uh when I first started out in this business, that you know, relatively not that long ago in the 80s, there were dozens of mom and pop publishers, all of whom were quite viable and they were independent. They were family-owned operations, some of them for generations. It's very difficult to find that today. Independent publishing has really become a dinosaur. There are still many out there and they're, you know, God bless them and they're doing well. But most of the publishing assets have been uh, like vacuum cleaned into these conglomerates. Uh, there's five major conglomerates. Three of them are not even USA owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knows that. And maybe no one cares. Maybe we shouldn't care. But Germany uh, controls about 60% of the United States uh, publishing, book publishing industry. You know, do, And then France has about 15% of it. And England has, you know, a certain percent. <laughs> uh, you know, when I point this out to people, they think, oh, Really, I didn't know that, and I don't know if they if it matters. I don't know. All the employees are here in the USA, but the point is is that the book publishing divisions are less than one percent of the operating revenue for these companies. They're making movies, they're making cable, they own cable, 
you know, they, they have Wi-Fi industries and magazines. And, and then at the very bottom, an asterisk in their revenue sheets is the book publishing division. And they're put under a corporate mandate as to how they have to function. You can't take a risk. You have to follow the corporate rules. A mom and pop could, take, could use their heart when it came to publishing. They could take risks. Right now, they want more heart. of the sure thing. And that probably... Right. Uh, a, yeah. A corporation doesn't have a heart. It has shareholders. Right. And so and that... Shareholders aren't, aren't people. They're pension funds. <laughs> right. So it's a different dynamic on getting a book published to begin with and the expectations of that book once it's been published. They probably have less patience for, you know, letting it, it an audience grow. Right. An editor who wants to publish with his or her heart and isn't making the bottom line is going to get fired. Right. It's that simple. So that, and but it so seems like there's my, more books out there yeah. being published nowadays. Is that not true? Well, there are more books being published because of self-publishing. I mean, and, and there's a lot of good books that are self-published. There, there's no doubt about it. And a lot of people are self-publishing because the opportunities for traditional publishing have actually become much more restrictive. I don't think there's as many traditional books being published as there used to be, especially in the nonfiction, uh, self-help, how-to categories. Now, for you as an agent, how do you still stay relevant for the people that are um, self-publishing? How, what value do you bring to the table for those people? Maybe if they want to transition their book to a traditional publisher, and very often they do want to make that transition, I can then act as their agent in, in selling it, pitching it to traditional publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, or if they want to, for their next book, go traditional, then I'm, I'm there for them. If their only goal is to self-publish, as a courtesy, I may give them some information about who a good printer is, who a good freelance editor is, you know, where they can get the different pieces. And I would do that, you know, because it's a courtesy for them. And I may be helping friends who provide these freelance services. Right. But I wouldn't be a financial beneficiary. So I'm going to give you an, there's an exception to every story. I have a client named Scott Dickers. He was the founding editor of a magazine, called, an online magazine called The Onion, which was very popular, mm -hmm. still popular. And he wanted to do a humor book about uh, Donald Trump. No publishers wanted to do it because this is over a year ago, two years ago. And they thought, well, he's just a flash in the pan. We'll publish this book and he'll lose Iowa primary. And, and then there's a book without, a man, you know, without any reason for anyone to read it. So we self-published it for him. We set up a, a publishing division just for him. And, and that worked out pretty well because uh, Trump succeeded beyond everybody's expectations. And we were able to sell copies, and then we sold the rights to the book to Simon & Schuster. And that's one of the advantages of having an agent, right? Are these kind of um, additional revenue streams for the author that aren't, maybe they're not as savvy to, to get that the agent can help them with? Absolutely. And then, you know, there's also translation rights. There's audio rights. Sometimes there's dramatization, film rights. All of these things, the agent plays a part in. 
you're going to be attending the Business Writers Conference in April in Alabama? That's right. Yeah, in a couple of weeks. I think it's uh, the 24th. It's the the 19th through the 21st. or And I think there's a pre-event that's maybe before and a post one after. So you're probably right in that, uh, the 17th through at least the 21st. Yeah, sooner than I realized. Yes, yes, I'll be there for the duration. And I think that's an excellent program for people in business who want to write books because writing a book, if you're in business, is an excellent way to further promote your your yourself and uh, your firm. And why why do you attend this? Do you, I imagine that you're uh, going to a lot of these throughout the year. How do you choose which ones to attend these kind of workshops? Uh, uh, I do a handful each year. I mean, my expenses are picked up, but I otherwise don't get paid. I do it because uh, for for selfish reasons, I, I tend to meet high quality individuals when I do it, who I can possibly uh, represent. And then I also do it because I can learn. It makes me talk about what I do, which makes me more conscious of what I do. And then I can learn from listening to the writers and stay current with what writers' needs are. And and that helps keep me a little smarter. Now, in the nonfiction, you mentioned this uh, building your business around your book. Do you, do you think that that's a good strategy for most nonfiction writers? In the business category, yeah. I mean, if you if you get a book published and you're promoting yourself, people just psychologically have immediately immediate respect for an individual who has a book out about his or her area of of expertise, even if it's self published. They still immediately. I mean, the fact that you were able to fill sixty thousand words uh, about your topic uh, <laughs> that I says something. People, <laughs> yeah. So, so you think that's a good strategy? And that, is that some of the counsel, like when you're working with an executive uh, that's putting together their first, maybe their first manuscript or their first, um, what is it, the pro- pro- proposal? Is yeah, to I mean, kind of- people are looking for a legacy. Also, they they want to be able to, they want the book to survive forever, <laughs> you know, for for decades, and it becomes sort of a legacy, you know, like it's proof that they knew something and that they did something. So if you were going to give advice to that new author, what would be the most important piece of advice? To know what your own goals are, what you want to accomplish from the book, primary goals and the secondary goals. Ego is perfectly legitimate as one of the goals. There's nothing wrong with that. You really need to look at the marketplace, meaning your customers, who you want to buy the book, and think about why they will what it is you can say to them that they can benefit from that may be a little different or a little unique or a little special compared to other books on the subject. Jeff Stone here. Before we wrap, where can our listeners go to learn more, maybe have a conversation with you or someone on your team, or maybe get their hands on some of the the books, the resources that you've created, uh, LinkedIn, website, whatever's appropriate? Probably my website, jeffherman.com, J-E-F-F-H-E-R-M-A-N. There's contact information there for me, and there's information about my books, or you can just go on Amazon and, you know, put in Jeff Herman, and you'll find my books, and that really keeps it simple. 
Jeff, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Lee and I will look forward to seeing you at the upcoming conference. We'll be broadcasting live there. Thanks so much, man. This has been fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Okie doke. Until next time, this is Stone Payton for Lee Cantor, our guest today, Jeff Herman, and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying we'll see you next time on Business Writers Radio. Business Writers Radio is brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. To learn more about developing a successful book and building your business around it, visit business-writers-exchange.com.